The Beaux-Arts Photography Podcast with Alan and Natalie Brio. Today, we are going to talk about how we created our podcast. And I call this podcast the story of the podcast. Wow. And it's actually already on the website, podcast story coming soon. So we better record it, otherwise we'll never have it on the site. And the idea of this podcast is to go over how we got started, you know, what was the idea that we had in the very beginning, and what we've done, the kind of episodes that we've covered, and how we sort of progressed over the years and uh, made changes and evolved and all of that. And then listen to some excerpts from the podcast to sort of exemplify what we're talking about. Sounds good. So how did we get started with the podcast? What was the very beginning? What was the idea? Do you remember? I think the idea was to help artists in business and start discussing some issues that came up at art shows. Yeah, the first podcast was recorded in 2006. I looked back and we started in 2006. I don't remember when, but probably I would say mid-year. And uh, in the very beginning, our motivation was really indeed to talk about how artists sell their work. That's actually the title of the first podcast, How Artists Sell Their Work, Artists in Business. And I think there's several parts. Well, we called it the business side of photography, and there are four parts, one, two, three, four. And they were recorded separately, and we did not really know that we were going to have four parts. We just kept talking. We just kept having new ideas, new things we wanted to say. And this was recorded in 2006, and it wasn't long after we had stopped the Grand Canyon, and it was still at the time that we were doing art shows, right? Yes, because I didn't stop doing the art shows till 2008 when we moved to this house that Where we're we living live in now, now. Yeah, and in 2008 we opened our home gallery and we stopped doing art shows for that point. Well, I would have continued, but the regular art show that I did in Scottsdale at that time decided to shut down in 2008. Yeah, it was a combination of events. So it was 2008 both was the recession. And uh, the art shows sort of collapsed. They did. People stopped buying art at art shows, and so art shows uh, got canceled. A lot of artists had to find real jobs, remember? Oh, yes, I (laughs) remember that. We went to this gallery, and we said, uh, where are the artists? And he said, uh, they got real jobs. They had to get real jobs. (laughs) And I (laughs) thought, wow, what a concept. What a trip, you know. And so a lot of art shows got canceled. And at the same time, you know, we bought this new house, and we had one room that we could use as a home gallery. And so at that point, we stopped doing art shows, in part because we had the home gallery and in part because art shows were being canceled. And then another f- reason, a further reason, was that we were tired of doing art shows. We wanted to move on to something else. Right. Bigger and better. You know, art shows are very tiring. And I always tell artists that it's a very good place to start, but you don't want to do that your whole life. Right. You want to graduate. And that's how we put it. You know, we graduated out of art shows. And now we sell on the web and in the home gallery. And we do just as well, if not better, actually, because we don't have the competition of the other artists at the shows anymore. But that was the motivation. It was to help artists sell their work and also talk about our experience selling our own work. Right. Right. That was really the very beginning. That was the sort of the seed that started the podcast. And we did four episodes on how artists sell their work, you know, the business side of photography. Right. So let's listen to one of them 
this is number two of four, and this is a random section. This one artist, uh, last March when I did a show, she was looking very depressed and and angry, and she was smoking outside her booth, and so, you know, I had seen her on Friday when we set up, so by Sunday I thought, well, you know, I'm going to go look at it and see what she's doing, you know, so I went over there, and she had these signs, very negative signs, and in red letters, bold, you know, but she did, she made these beautiful wooden bowls that she made by hand, but she had these signs around the booth that said, absolutely no refunds, <laughs> you know, or exchanges, or you break it, you bought it. These signs were shouting at me, not only in bold and red and loud, and and as much as I thought her work was so beautiful, and I am an artist, and I understand marketing and everything, I left. It's scary. I, I, I didn't even get yeah. to enjoy her artwork because yeah. I was so distracted with this negative energy right. going around the booth you that feel I like, left. Right. You feel like your body is a liability. What if you knock something? Off you are. You must buy it. Or I bump it. What and if I bump it? Is she going to bite my head off? And, and it's interesting because what this artist is doing is attracting attention to the dangers of being in our booth. Or the dangers of buying her product. Right, or buying <laughs> You buy it, you're stuck with it. I mean, we have, what, what kind of money-back guarantee do we have? So that was one of our first episodes. Wow. And very interesting section. And obviously, one of the things we're talking about is the kind of things we see at shows that should never be done. Right. And this was a horror story, literally. Yeah, in this instance, it was obvious the signage was a problem in the booth. Right, one of yeah. many, many problems. And of course... There are many other things that artists do that lead to poor sales, which, you know, usually, to me, explains why artists do very poorly in terms of income. It's not that people don't buy art. People spend millions of dollars on art. Oh, I mean, yes. Literally, if not billions. But artists have no experience doing business, don't know how to talk to customers, don't know how to handle sales, don't know how to use signs, as we just saw. And they turn down customers. They basically scare people off. Or know? turn them off. Or yes. don't know how to close the sale. I mean, basically what happens with artists, and this is really not a podcast on marketing, but I just want to talk about what we just heard. What happens with artists is that they have an enormous amount of experience making art, but zero experience running a business and certainly not running an artistic business. Some of them may have an experience running another business, but if your previous business was, let's say, a technical repair shop or some form of an engineering business or making computer chips or things like that, it doesn't carry over into art. No, you know, it does you, not. You have no experience doing direct sales to people who are buying a luxury product, which is really what it is. I mean, when you sell fine art, you're doing direct sales of a luxury product to people that have very little experience usually buying that product. I always say that people have more experience buying homes and cars than they have buying art. And that's true. It is true. And so yes. you really have to help people. You want to make them feel comfortable. You definitely don't want to scare them off with your sign, like we just saw. And you really have to know how to sell. You have to be a very good salesperson. And that's a training that the artists don't have. And that's one of the things that we offer during the marketing seminars, during also all of the mastery marketing on DVD series that I offer. 
But that was really where we started because we saw a problem. And from there we evolved. I mean, we moved on, right? And let's look at some of the other episodes that we recorded. One of them, actually number five, was a sampler of Travis Terry Music City that we had recorded at that time. Oh, yes. That was so much fun going down to Canyon Records and having that professionally recorded. And the engineer was so nice. And Travis did a really great job. Yeah. And the podcast followed our business dealings in a way because we were sitting at art shows and we recorded a podcast on that. And then when we stopped and we recorded this music CD for product, I mean, that was recorded as a product that we were going to sell, we recorded a podcast on that. And we actually gave a sample of the CD. And I think it should be here. So this is an audio sampler. I don't think there is much in terms of talk. Well, we can just listen to a little bit of it. But let's see what we have. Yeah, it's just the music. So this was really little bits and pieces of each song. It, it wasn't a full song. No, it wasn't. Yeah. But that was something that we put in the podcast. And we did not talk. We actually just recorded the music. I think at the time, we did not know as much as we do now about podcasting. And if it was to be done now, I think we would actually talk about how we created the podcast, how we made the recording, how we met Travis, you know, all of that, right? Oh, yeah, and just the experience yeah. in the studio with the sound engineer and Travis but, recording. But back then, we didn't. We yeah. just included some of the recording from the music CD. Well, even to this day, I love that. Yeah. That is my favorite CD. Yeah, you know? because we recorded and, two of them, uh, Navajo Land and then Grand Canyon. Yeah. But it's something that we may want to do, actually, in a future podcast, talk about the recording experience uh, when we actually recorded that music CD at Canyon Records. Yes, that was very interesting. From there, we actually did several podcasts, two of them on the very first Mastery Workshops on DVD, with both an audio sampler and then a video sampler. And that was the first time that we published a movie on the podcast. The thing that's really interesting about our podcast is that it has some unique aspects. And one of them is that it's not just an audio podcast. We have movies that are usually... I either excerpts from my DVD or recently there are slideshows from the summit photographs from the participant photographs. Yes. You know, we now feature slideshows from participant photographs at the summit. Just from the, the last four years or yeah, so. Yeah, over we've the done last that. three, That's four years. That's just a, a re- fairly recent thing. And then another aspect is that this podcast is not just one person talking, it is almost always a conversation between you and I. Yes. Except when I have excerpts from my Mastery Workshop on DVDs where I'm the only one talking because it's me teaching on the Mastery Workshops. But otherwise, it's always a conversation between you and I. Right. And I looked around on podcasts and it's very uncommon. Actually, I haven't found anybody where where they do that. Oh. Well, a lot of photographers are 
you know, one-person corporations, right? <laughs> right. Know? They are very lonely people. And uh, if they do a podcast, they do it on their own. You know, very few of them actually run a business with a partner. And those that do, I don't think uh, they, you know, enough of them to actually have another podcast with a husband and wife team. Right. At least I haven't found it. You know, there may be one, but I haven't found it. And that's really one of the things that makes our podcast unique. It also makes it more interesting, I think. I think it makes it fun because yeah. we... Uh, yeah. We laugh a lot. We do, and we each experience it a little bit differently, and uh, we just have a good time. Well, I couldn't do the podcast alone at this point. I would find it boring. You know, I, I don't like the idea of just talking to a microphone by myself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I record a tutorial, it's different because yes. obviously... I'm not talking to myself. I'm actually talking to students, you know, that are going to be studying this tutorial. But a podcast, to me, is not really a teaching tool. It's something that we use to share our thoughts. And sharing thoughts to myself doesn't sound very exciting. Well, here, we're talking to each other, right? Right. And we think of different things, you know. Well, yeah, because like we, what is art and right. we just did that uh those podcasts and we had very different takes on the different aspects of what is art and, and that was very interesting i mean could you do the podcast by yourself no and, and i have no interest yeah i mean yeah. what would you how would you feel if you did it by yourself I think I'd feel awfully lonely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who am I going to laugh with or, right. you know, tell jokes with? Or, I think uh, one of know. the uh, unique aspects of our podcast, you know, and this is what it makes me think of, you know, just this conversation now, is that we have fun during the podcast. We do. Well, think of the brothers that did Car Talk. I mean, how, how would it be with one of the Car Talk brothers? Well, one of them died and the whole show stopped I because mean, the other one couldn't do it by himself. Oh, I just yeah. loved listening yeah. to the two brothers. Well, the difference between us and Car Talk is that Car Talk, they called. Yes, and we talked they about did. Cars, right? <laughs> it was so much fun to hear those People phone would calls. call and say, um, I have the sound in my car. It goes... Uh, and he, and he would say, does it go, or does it go, kung, kung? He say, well. Because there is a difference. Because there is a And the brother <laughs> say, yeah, because if it goes, that's okay. But if it goes, kung, kung, oh, my God. You, know, you are in big you, trouble. You're in deep doo-doo. And <laughs> so the person would say, well, you know, sometimes it does, but then other times it's closer to, dung, dung, you know. Right. And say, oh, oh. We need to look into this more deeply. And they would just laugh their heads off. Oh, you know, they and would. And they would ask each other, well, what do you think it is? I mean, I, I remember <laughs> this lady called one time and she said, I have a problem with my VW bike. And he said, well, what kind of problem do you have? And she said, well, I covered it with gemstones, you know, rhinestones. Oh, yes, I remember. And they are coming off when I drive. Yes. <laughs> and they become missiles. Right. <laughs> and the people behind me are getting impacted with all my rhinestones, and I don't know what to do. <laughs> it was one of the most funny episodes. It was. And they're like, oh, my God, this is terrible. We have to find a solution. He said, it's all about the glue. What kind of glue did you use? Yes, <laughs> you yes. Know? You have to find special rhinestone glue, you know, right. that holds to, you know, and it has to be able to withstand wind up to, let's say, 75 miles an hour, because that's the maximum speed you should be going to legally, right? right. <laughs> you know? 
Someone will ask us, oh, how fast does your VW Bug go? My VW Bug did not go 75 miles an hour. Can you get to 75 (laughs) miles an hour? Mine never did. (laughs) So she says, well, not really, maybe 60, 65 times. Well, that's good news because we don't have to look at glue that's going to be as expensive as if it went 75 miles an hour. What kind of glue did you use? And so she's like, I don't know. I think I just used, uh, you know, regular Elmer's glue. I say, oh, no, no, that can't do it. <laughs> and it has to be waterproof. What if it rains? <laughs> and your VW bug just loses all its rhinestones. Oh, I'm sure they were asking her what climate she lived in I mean, and it all just, sorts of things. You know, is it yeah. waterproof, you know, the glue? And right. I mean, it was just really, really funny. But I think, obviously, one of the unique characteristics of that show was that it was a conversation between these two brothers yes, and the people calling and that they were, you know, offering real-world solutions. I mean, they actually gave them real solutions. Oh, they did, yes. But they also made a whole lot of fun of it. And, and that's really what made Car Talk so interesting. It's that they would make light or, or they, would, they would bring a very light-hearted side to car problems yeah because that could a, be stressful a lot of us when we have a car problem we are stressed yes and and that's because we don't know what's going on and if we take it to a shop we don't know if it's going to be fifty dollar or five thousand dollars right 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 i mean i'm i'm not as stressed as i used to be about it because i know that if we have a car problem it can be fixed with money and you know we are financially okay so unless it would cost the price of the car you know we will not be able to fix it right but in the past, I had no idea what to do. I mean, I would be even scared to go to the garage because, like I said, you don't know if it's going to be 50 bucks or 500 or 5,000 or what, you know. Right. Do I need to tighten a screw or do I need to replace the whole thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And car problems can also take very strange aspects. Like one time in Michigan where I couldn't start my car in the winter because the choke on the carburetor wasn't set rich enough so right. I open the hood get a screwdriver and unscrew the little screw that controlled the choke on the carburetor which I knew you know because I had done it before but what I had forgot is that I had already unscrewed it all the way and that little turn that I gave was enough to make it pop out and it fell into the snow and I couldn't find it we never it. found it and now of course with no screw for the choke I couldn't start the car at all right because gas was shooting out so I couldn't drive the car. I had to take a taxi or go. I, I forgot how I got there. And then I go to the garage, right, which was uh, Dirk uh, Car Repair or something like that. I forgot the name of it. And I tell the guy, I say, you know, I lost the screw for my carburetor. And he looks at me and says, oh, God, they don't sell those screws by themselves. I'm like, really? He says, no. So we're going to have to replace the whole carburetor. Well, there we go, because a screw is $3. A carburetor is 300 and I'm like, my God, can you look? So he looked around, and I think he found one. You know, he said, it's not exactly the same. I'm like, I don't care if it's not the right, same. Exactly. As long as it works, you know. But that's the kind of things that happen. I mean, you know, you, you want to go, in my case, to school. To work. Oh, yeah, yeah, but in my case, it was to school. And I was working at the same time because I was teaching and studying both. You want to go to school. Your car doesn't start. You try to fix it. You lose the screw. Now you can't go at all. You have to take a taxi. You go to the garage and it goes from bad to worse because they can't find a part and they have to replace the whole thing. And, and then who knows, right? Right. You know, they right. might find out more problems, right? Or you, you have know. to get your car towed to the well, garage. Yeah. Well, yeah. It ha- definitely had to be towed because obviously, you know, I wasn't going to put a screw back myself since I did not have one. So, you know, they found a lighthearted approach 
to something which is very stressful for a lot of people and right. that really relaxes them and that's not exactly what we do on the podcast but it's sort of a little bit what we do because we try to bring a light-hearted approach to photography you know having fun with it looking at art from the perspective of being you know relaxed about it and having fun with it oh, yes. as opposed to being stressed you know you can't be creative and stressed at the same time obviously and no. so that's one of the things we try to do so that was the next thing all of these samplers for my mastery workshops on dvd and then after that we talked about what it was to be an artist and we had uh, three episodes on being an artist and that was starting at podcast number 14 and uh, that one was about talking about what it feels like to be an artist right mm -hmm. so listen to a little excerpt of that and we'll see what we get I also see a problem with photographers claiming to be artists, yet saying that they do not need an audience. In my view, in addition to the previous partial definition of what an artist is, being an artist is sharing your view of the world with a specific audience. This is true even if you are sharing it with an audience of one. Why? Because being an artist is sharing your vision with others. You can argue that you are your own audience that you only aim at pleasing yourself, and that you do not care if anyone else sees your work. That is fine, and I do not have a problem with it. But according to my view, that being an artist is, among other things, sharing your view of the world, then if you are your own audience, and you do not show your work to anyone else whatsoever, you are not an artist, i.e. you are not someone who makes art. If you think about this carefully, you will find out that there are few people actually that fit in this category. Virtually all of us show our work to other people, no matter how few. You will also realize that in fact, when someone says that they are their own audience and that they do not want to know what others think of their work, what they are really saying is that they are either afraid of what others might say or not willing at this time to face comments about their work. So that was an excerpt actually of one of my essays. And this actually proves me wrong about what I did before, which is not doing a podcast by myself, which obviously I was doing here, but I was not talking to myself. I was actually reading out of my book, I think. This is uh, an excerpt of one essay called Being an Artist, and I divided it in three different episodes, part one, two, and three, when I read the essay on the podcast. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like you're reading what you yeah. wrote. So this is not ad lib, and we're not just talking without having any uh, preparation. I'm reading aloud, basically. Right. Yeah. So that was a different aspect of the podcast. And like I said, one of the things we did is try all sort of different approaches. We did the marketing, then the audio recording, then the excerpt from the mastery DVDs, and then the reading. And I may have done another reading, but I don't think I did a whole lot of them. That was the main one, I think. One of the things that we did after that was a series of reviews of photographs. And actually, that's me that was doing that. I would have a notice on my website for visitors to send me photographs that they wanted me to review. I remember, yeah. yeah. And then I would select one and I would do a video review. And that was actually very popular. Yeah, it was People very popular. People really yeah. enjoyed it. I had a huge amount of submissions, submissions and I could only do a few. Right. You know? Yeah. Right. I remember you working on yeah. that. And they were, they're all, they're still there, and they're all 
movie reviews. That is, right. it's me talking about the photo, what I see that works, what I see that doesn't work, what's right, what's wrong with the photo. And then me fixing what I think doesn't work, right? Right. And sometimes it's the color, sometimes it's the composition, sometimes I crop, sometimes I stretch exactly. or walk or change things. I mean, right. anything and everything, right? Yeah, and that was very popular. And I think you picked certain images that you could do certain things to. Well, when I you picked did the, the ones that would inspire me to do changes. Right. The ones that I liked. Right. Yeah. If you have a photograph that's not very good and you don't like it, you can't really improve on it. You know. Right. Especially not uh, in the sense of creating a tutorial movie showing what to do, because you have to have an idea of what to do. Right. And, and you had guidelines. I mean, you probably didn't choose those that were close to documentary and that sort of thing right. as well. Well, people had to agree that I was free to change whatever I wanted. Right. Yeah. Oh, to their image, <laughs> yes. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. Do unspeakable yes. things yes. to their photographs. Uh, will you please sign mm. here? Yeah. Well, no, I did not have anybody I'm sign. I'm just joking. But... Um, what I did is make sure that people were clear on the fact that I manipulate. You right. know, I wasn't just going to change the color and say, it's a little bit too green. I'm going to add some red. Right. I went all out. And you probably did contrast. I went all yeah. out. I mean, yeah. you know, whatever crossed my mind, I did. You whatever briotized it. I briotized it to the max, yes. No holes barred. It was everything. And I did a number of them. You know, I forgot exactly how many were here, but I may have done as many as 10 of them. And uh, that lasted for a while. You know, I see up to episode number 40, 41, we did all of that. Around number 40, we changed. And we had a podcast titled Prospering During the Recession, which was back to marketing, actually. Yes, it was. And uh, this is uh, one that we can listen to an excerpt. This is number 41 prospering during the recession and obviously that was done in 2008 because that's when the recession was in full swing and uh, let's listen to an excerpt of that once you make photography your profession then you need to find a new hobby that's true and most photographers never do that and I was one of them I had a customer one day that asked me when I was uh, selling my work what my hobbies were and I drew a blank and then I looked at him and I had to acknowledge the fact that I did not have any. My, my hobby had become my profession and that was my life. And my life was basically photography. I had nothing else. And you were a slave to it. I was a slave to it. And I, you know, basically, if I did not do photography, I was either eating or sleeping. That was it. Right. And I've so talked to a lot of... So where did the sense of fulfillment come in for you? Well, it, for a long time, the sense of fulfillment comes from the fact that you managed to make your hobby your profession. Right. And that can carry on four or five years, you know, sometimes as much as 10 years. And then one day, you run out of steam. Because fulfillment cannot just be doing your work. Right. Fulfillment has to be something that, in a sense, you don't put a price on. You don't have a financial value. You don't have a number on. And at that point, that's when you realize that, and, and a lot of photographers never realize it. That's the interesting thing, because they struggle so much. They always fight the lack of income. You know, they have a real problem with cash flow because they don't price their work high enough. And so they, ne they make a sale, and as soon as that sale is done, they think of the next sale, because they need to make many sales in order to generate substantial income, to generate even the income they need. The way we have it structured now, we make one sale and we can basically take off we are fine. We, we can co close the shop for, yes. for some time because that sale is substantial and will carry us for quite a while. So we are running it the proper way. 
So that was a conversation that was back to business and marketing, which, you know, makes sense. I mean, we are running a business, we are setting art, and we are talking about the kind of issues that we deal with. Right. And uh, that was during the recession where a lot of artists really had a rough time. And for some reason, during the recession, we were not really impacted all that much. You know, I don't remember. No, we weren't. Actually, our, our income did not drop, right? No, yeah. but there were artists that couldn't even afford to pay the show fees to do an art show. I remember that time. And, show, and they were asking the promoters if they could carry them through until they made some sales. And the promoters didn't want to do that because what if the artist didn't sell anything for three days or the duration of the And one thing. aspect of paying show fees is that you can't use a credit card. They don't take checks. That's they don't true. take credit cards. Right. And so if you don't have the cash, you can't charge it. And maybe now they do, but back then they didn't. Right, right. There was also issues. Is that correct? I mean, yeah, that that is correct. I I wrote personal checks for the whole uh, entire season. You can't just charge. These organizers don't care for credit cards, you know. Well, I don't know what they do now. Yeah, they might have moved. But that was in two thousand eight. But back then you couldn't. So either you had the cash or you didn't. And if you didn't, you wrote a check or paid cash. Right. If you did not have the cash. If you don't have the money in your account, you can't write a check, then you can't do the show. And you can't go to the bank and say, I'd like to have a loan for show fees, right? Right. It doesn't work that way. No. They'll laugh at you. <laughs> yeah, so that was a very interesting time. Yeah. It was a hard time, and I think that's what motivated us to record this podcast called Surviving During the Recession, because we were really trying to help people with the sale of their work. We know? were. Because there's no reason why artists can't make money selling prints. I mean, we hear it a lot. People telling us the reason why you teach workshops is because you can't sell prints. No, it's not the reason. The reason why we teach workshops is because we sell prints and we have extra time. Right. You know, I mean, at the Grand Canyon, not only did we, did we sell prints, we sold hundreds of thousands of prints and we made millions of dollars. And that's what enabled us to move on to teach workshops. Mm-hmm. But what we see happen now is a lot of photographers that start a business, try to sell a print or to reinvent, fail, which is not surprising because for the first two years that I started my business, I made no money whatsoever. But they don't wait two years. They wait maybe three months, six months. They fail. And then they're like, well, you know, our selling prints doesn't work. I'm just going to teach workshops. Well, we made, a lot of, uh, we made a lot of mistakes that we had to correct. But we, I yes. made no money the first two years. Honestly, I mean, you have to find customers. You know, people are like, I'm just going to sell my work. Great. And they're like, what do you think? What do I think? Well, what I think is that selling your work is not a problem. You can open a shop, have a website, do shows. The real question is, who is going to buy from you? Who are you going to sell to? Right. Because what we have with art is a very interesting situation where artists create a product which is their art, you know, let's say a framed photograph of a landscape in our situation, and then they look for a customer. But if you look at business, any sort of business, they follow the exact inverse approach. They find a customer, they find out what that customer needs, and then they create a product to fit that need. Right. (laughs) Artists do the exact opposite. Right. And so they're like, I don't sell anything. I say, well, did you even ask yourself if people need what you have? Mm-hmm. No. They don't, right? Because they are just creating something that makes them happy. Right. That's great. If it's to make you happy, I think you succeeded. But how do you know that somebody else is going to like it? Right. Well, you don't because you right. never inquired. And so, you know, they put it up for sale. Nobody cares. And they don't sell. And then they're like, you can't sell art. Well, no, that's not exactly true. Right. <laughs> you can't sell your art. 
because maybe your art is not pleasing to people for whatever reason. It could be the size, the frame, the presentation, the price, the everything. I mean, you know, who knows? It it's, depends on the specifics of the artist's approach, you know, a product. But I can tell you one thing. I can sell mine. Right. Not only because I have been doing it for a long time, but because I know what people like. Right. And I provide something that people like. Now, when you say that people are like, oh, you're selling your soul. No, it doesn't mean that I'm doing something specifically to please people. But I know what people like in terms of the size, the framing, the price, the presentation, the shipping, the salesmanship, the way I talk to them, the way I address them, the way I market it. I mean, it's a whole thing. It's not one particular thing. Right. It's a whole package, it's a package. or system. The, the minute you say, oh, I know what people like, people think that you create photographs in order to sell it to a particular group of people. Well, that's not at all what we do. Right. But we know what people like in terms of the whole package. Mm-hmm. And that's really the thing that's missing in a lot of photographers. And that took us a long time to figure out. Like I said, I did not sell anything for the first two years because I had something that people couldn't care for. And I did not know who my audience is. I had no idea who to sell it to. Right. You know, on and on and on. It's a business, you know, that means you have to have business sense. You well, have to have an understanding of what you're selling. And I think that also when you do shows, you need to understand the show. I mean, there's a, a learning curve in that as well. You know, selling your stuff, your location or mm-hmm. wherever the art show is, you have to learn what that is and who the audience is and all of that, too. How to do it. Yes. I mean, we hear it over and over again, artists that do a first show and come back and say, I did my first show. And we're like, how did it work? And they say, well, not very well. I sold nothing or I sold one piece or two pieces. And you said, really, was it a bad show? I said, no, it wasn't a bad show. The guy in front of me sold hundreds of pieces. He was selling on and on and on and on. And his work wasn't very different from mine. Well, then why did he sell all of that and you didn't, right? There has to be a reason. Right. Right. And the reason is because he knows what he's doing and he's been doing it for years and you don't because you're just starting. Right. And you have to learn. There's a learning curve. There is. It's not because you have the exact same work or very similar work to somebody else that all of a sudden you're going to have the same income as this other person. Right. It I doesn't agree. work that way. No, it doesn't. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Right. Yeah. It's a whole package. But what I see now, for instance, is people that start to sell their work at shows, they don't give it a good go. No. They uh, quit just after a few shows. They get discouraged. They don't have the mental toughness to go through it. Mm. I mean, you have to have mental toughness. I remember sitting at shows and not selling anything, not selling anything, and artists start packing up early, and I, I'm telling myself, don't you dare pack up early, Natalie. You got to do it till the very end. And somebody comes walking in 10 minutes before the end of the show and says to me, why is everybody packing up? You know what I mean? And, and here I was able to make a large sale, but you have to have that mental toughness where you don't quit, you don't give up, and you have to talk to yourself and don't let yourself get depressed. And you have to have strategies, and you have to know what strategies that work for you. I have my own personal strategies that wouldn't work for somebody else. So, and you have to be hungry. Yes. Oh, definitely. <laughs> uh, that is like number one. Uh, my girlfriends were shocked. Like they would come and talk to me and socialize. I would say, "Excuse me, I need to go make a sale," and they were shocked. And I would go, I would make a sale, 
you know, and then I would tell him, uh, I would walk up back up to him later and talk to him again. And I, I would say to him, I'm here to make sales. I'm not here to socialize, right. you know, so I got to go. I got to make a sale. Yeah. And, and they were shocked and they watched my approach. They watched my sales techniques. And then I started noticing that sometimes they would mimic me. You know how I would carry the artwork into the sun, right. the full sun to get the reflections off. They're not selling artwork. They're selling knitted baby clothes and stuff. But they started walking it out into the sunshine and, and started showing people. Yeah, they're hand painted boxes. And, but and did it work? Did people? It did, yeah. you know, but I, I was like, what are they doing? Wow. And then I realized that, they're you know, Watch and learn. That's they what were watching, yeah. you know, and they would say to me, I notice you write a receipt for each and every single yeah, sale. Yeah, one of them asked you if you wrote a receipt for cash sales. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you said, yeah. what did you say? I said, absolutely, you know. And what and did she say? She said, oh, she goes, I didn't think you charged tax for cash sales, only for <laughs> credit card sales or, yeah. you know, and, and then, know. you it's know. All, it's, I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling, you know. It's all over, yeah. you know. But you're right that what we see a lot now with people that are starting to do shows in the post-recession days or age is that they want instant gratification and they are not hungry. Exactly. I agree with and you. And if you It's... have these two problems, how can you succeed? Right. Because when we started, first of all, I did not want instant gratification. I was in there for the long run. I mean, right. this was going to work or else I was going to do something entirely different and I was going to give it a good try. Not three months, not six months, but I had given myself a good five to 10 years. And second, was I hungry? Man, I mean, when we did the Grand Canyon, by the time we drove to the Grand Canyon from Chinle, Canyon de Che, which was what, 300, 400 miles? I forgot. It was a long ways. It was a six hour drive. Yeah. So, so 300 miles. 400. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. one at 60 miles an hour. But yeah, because no. you can't go through the reservation right. no. really fast. 400 miles. But by the time we had filled up with gas and ate along the way, we were broke. And the next day, if we did not make a sale, we couldn't eat and we couldn't fill up the truck. We had to make sales in order to just have enough money to fill up the truck with gas and have dinner. Oh, I remember. That's called being hungry. Oh, know? yeah. It's putting yourself in a situation where you have to succeed. Right. And people are like, well, I don't want to do that. I'm not desperate. It's not a matter of being desperate. It's a matter of whether or not you want to succeed. Right. I mean, I read something very interesting about Victor Hugo, you know, the author of The Miserable. Oh, yes. The Miserable. You right. Know. Writer's block, right? I mean, everybody has writer's block, including Hugo, right? His technique was to lock himself in his room, call his valet. He was a well-to-do man, so he had a valet. Strip naked, give all his clothes to his valet. You can't go anywhere without clothes. So he couldn't go out of his office until he had written. And when he had written, he'd call him back, put his clothes back on and go on. Wow. Move on. That was his technique. And I tell you, it's brutal. It's not comfortable. But apparently it worked. And it might sound insane. And maybe it is. But you know what? It worked. And, you know, who cares, right? He's alone in his office, right? Right. He's not hurting anybody. But he is a man who was hungry for writing, even though he was a successful writer. Right. You have to do what it takes. You don't have to do that in particular, but you have to do what it takes. Mm -hmm. You have to put yourself in a situation where you can't escape because of whatever reason. You can't sneak out. You, right. you can't just excuse yourself. Right. I mean, look at how many people want to sell fine art and then they can't sell and they're like, well, I don't need the money that bad. Well, then why did you even start? Right. If you don't need the money that bad, 
you know what? The first challenging sale you're going to work out. Right. And guess what? Most sales are challenging. Yeah, they are. And so it's going to be a challenging thing. To well, just... and I think also, you know, it depends on your character because even as a child, I would just never, never, never quit. I was the only girl that was playing on baseball teams and basketball teams and the boys never mm -hmm. passed me the ball or gave me the ball. And I had to fight like crazy to play second base because I was the smallest player on the whole mm -hmm. entire team. And all these big girls wanted to play second base and the coach was saying, right. no, no, no. And they were pointing at me because I was the youngest and the smallest. And he was like, no, 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 she is staying on second mm -hmm. base. I'm not moving her. So I fought really, even as a kid, right. hard for everything that I got. And I think that just carries through. It's well, just, it a, it's a part you. of me. It stays with you. It right? does. You know, yeah. and we just watched yesterday uh, the boxing match, Horn versus Pacquiao, and right. Horn won. And when he was interviewed, he was asked if he had anything to say. And he said, this victory is for all the people that were bullied when they were little. Oh, yeah. And that's his motivation. He was bullied and he learned boxing because of that. I read his biography and, uh, you know, that gave him the motivation to not give up. Right. Because he got tired of being bullied. And so he decided that, you know what, I'm just going to learn boxing. And if they bully me, I'll pound on their head. You oh, know, yeah. Guess, you know? Yeah. Well. Um, and that made him win the championship. And to make know? up for all of that, because like in basketball, the boys would never pass me the ball. I would just stay at home and practice and practice and practice right. shooting, shooting, mm. shooting, shooting. And you mm. know what? The one time that they passed me the ball, right. it went right into the basket. Yeah. My dad was jumping, yelling, and screaming, and uh, it just felt really good. See, right. if they had passed me the ball earlier right. in the season, I probably could have made more baskets. Yeah, but you made the basket when it <laughs> mattered. That's all that. Yeah. yeah. But uh, it's to the point now when students want to study marketing with me and, and start a business and so on, I tell them, don't expect to make money for the first two years. Right. I mean, you'll make a few sales here and there, but this is not running a business. A business is not making a few sales occasionally. Right. A business is making regular sales on an ongoing basis. Absolutely, I agree. And if they say, oh, two years, forget it. That's too long. I need to make money next week. Well, I'm sorry, but this is not going to work for you because my system is designed to get you to succeed, but you've got to give it time. And I'm not saying you're not going to sell anything for two years, but what I'm saying is that it's going to take a good two years for you to develop a regular selling system, a system that allows you to make regular sales. Right. And I, I have it that way because I don't want students that are motivated only because they know or they expect or they hope that they're going to succeed in two or three months. Mm -hmm. If they have only three months to run a business and succeed, forget it. There's no business in the world that can be made to succeed in three months. Right. It doesn't matter what you sell. I mean, two years is usually considered to be a minimum amount, right? Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, it depends also what their goals are. You know, I mean, we had a student during the marketing seminar. Her goal was what? A few thousand dollars a year? Well, I, I think 20,000. 20,000? Yeah, I mean, because she has retirement coming in. So she was hoping to, yeah. you know, do 20,000 a year. But what we don't realize is that whether you're going to make 20,000 or you're going to make 200,000, you're going to have to work just as hard. Absolutely. So you may and, as well go for the bigger one. And the, the business cost, the expense of running a business, because running a business, if you don't know about that, has a cost. It's not free. The business costs are the same whether you make 20 grand or 200 grand. Absolutely. For that matter, they are the same all the way to a million. 
there's no real change in what your costs are. You don't need a bigger website, you don't need a bigger house, you don't need uh, more expenses. You know, your expenses are not going to go up because you, you make a million dollars or 20 grand. The only thing that's going to go up is your credit card fees. You're going to have more credit card fees. So that's the difference, right? <laughs> you know, but there's no other increase, you know. So you want to be ambitious. And I recommend that because if you shoot high, guess what? Even if you miss the mark, you're still going to go pretty far. Right. But if you shoot low and you miss the mark, you're going to hit the ground. You know? Oh, I know. I know. So let's look at what is the next episodes on this podcast. Let's stick back to our topic, which is how the podcast got started. And I think just like we did for what is art, we'll have probably to record at least the second episode because I don't see how we can go through this on one episode. But one of the things I wanted to talk about before we move on to the next uh, subject was how the podcast quality changed over the years. Oh, yes. And I'm not sure that we can really hear it here on, well, on uh, the samples that I played. On one of them, there was a buzzing noise through the whole thing. On the one so, of the recession, yeah. somehow, I had, when I recorded... Was it another, because... What happened is back then, I would use a USB mixing table, and I had another thing plugged in from another oh. audio source, and I forgot to unplug it. And when you have that, even though there's no sound, there is a little bit of a signal coming through, yeah. and it gives that buzzing noise. Right. And we recorded the whole thing with that. We did not hear it because I wasn't listening to the feedback. Right. We were just talking. We had no feedback. Like right now, I don't have a feedback either because you could hear it. And it's somehow recorded and there's no way to remove it. Right. Or I was going to ask you if you had that noise because it was a recession. <laughs> no, it wasn't because it was a recession. It's because I had plugged in a second audio <laughs> yeah. source in the mixing table. The mixing table had like four or five different inputs. Right. And I forgot to unplug it. And that source was live and uh, it had this buzzing noise. That was, I think, the only one time we had that. I think so. You know, all of that to say that the sound quality has changed over the years. Oh, in the very, very beginning, really the very good. first podcast, I think, was recorded on an Olympus voice recorder, which is used for conferences or classroom notes. Right. You know, very small. I remember those. Something that cost like $50. It did not even have a removable flash Microphone. card. It had a built-in memory. And then you had to connect it to the computer with a USB cord in order to download the software. And I think I had to use Olympus software because it did not have common format files. It had a proprietary Olympus file system. It was complicated. And the quality was really low, obviously. Right. And then we went on to USB microphones connected to the computer with a USB mixing table. And USB is nice, but it does limit the throughput rate because USB is not a very fast connector especially USB 1, which was what I used at the time. And so you are limited in the data rate that you can send through the USB cable. And that affects the quality. And I don't know what it was, but it was below 48. Now, for example, this podcast is recorded at 192, which is the highest rate possible. And that's because we're using an Agra recorder, which is a very high-end device. But we ran through all sorts of different solutions in the meantime. At one point, I had a voice analyzing hardware that allowed me to filter out pops and sibilance and change the sound a little bit. That was good. But there's no real substitute for a very high-end microphone. I agree. That's what we found out. And eventually, over the years, we went through Audio-Technica microphones. I had um, another brand. I forgot what it was. 
And eventually, last year, I thought, you know, I'm just going to look at what is the best microphones in the world. And that turns out to be the Neumann microphones. They are made in Germany. And they've been around in uh, audio recording studios since the 40s, you know. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we listened to Frank Sinatra, and I have no doubt in oh, my head that that was recorded with Neumann. I love Frank Newman. Sinatra, yeah. I know. And there's no yes, doubt whatsoever that it was recorded with Neumann microphones. I mean, Neumann right. microphones are so valued, and they are so strong, I mean, in terms of the build. I mean, it's all metal, that a studio literally considers it an investment. I saw a studio being sold in Cuba. They sold the studio, and the value of the studio was in large part the number of Newman microphones they had. Oh, wow. And they had a good 100 or 200 of them, but they are $1,000 to $3,000 a piece. So you can imagine, you know, <laughs> you get very close to a million dollars in no time here, just in microphones. Right. And so the real estate may have been worth a million, and then the microphones were worth a million. You know? Right. And so as I bought several Newman microphones, there's a number of different models. But we found out eventually through testing that, you know, the 103 is one of the very best ones. That's the one I'm using. And you're using a slightly different one because we wanted to have a different sound. But that's what we are using now after changing over the years a number of different brands. And we no longer record onto a USB mixing table, which limits the throughput rate. We now record directly into a high-end Nagra recorder, mm -hmm. which allows me to use the highest bitrate possible and then a downsample from there into an MP3 file on the computer. But that retains a lot of the quality. And the MP3 files are still recorded at a high bitrate also right. in order to not lose as much of the quality as possible. But what I found out is really no substitute to a very, very high-end microphone. It's very much like photography. There's no substitute to a very high-end lens. And in photography, the best lenses in the world are Zeiss, Leica, Hasselblad, these kind of things. And now we have Sony, but Sony uses a lot of Zeiss glass, you know. Yes, they and do. In audio, there's no substitute for Newman. I'll swear to them. I mean, they are just incredible. And it's all XLR connectors, very high-end. And then when we do recordings, live in, the, in you know, the field in the field or at the summit or during seminars then i use a sony system with wireless lapel lavalier microphones right. you know, which is a completely different system and i have obviously high level gear and a very large number of uh, audio gear and that's because it's a really important part of what we are doing because not only do we record the podcast, which is obviously an important part of what we do, but we also record all of the presentations that I give. The summit has been recorded every year oh, since yes. 2006. Yeah. And I just published the summit collection, which is all the summit recordings from 2006 to 2016, which is 11 years total. I record all of my seminars, all of my presentations, and I do all of that in audio with the wireless microphone so that there's no need for me to pay attention to it. It's done automatically as I speak. So audio improvements over the year, I think, has been, to me, one of the very big changes of the podcast. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And audio, obviously, if you're going to do audio recording, audio quality has to be there. It's, it's important. I agree. One of the things that I like with our new system is the complete absence of background noise. Yes, if you listen to the older podcast, there was always some form of background noise, you know, hissing or, or some sort of uh, background sound. And that's gone now because these equipments are so good. And we don't have to record at a very high amplification rate. 
we can really control this very, very carefully. I mean, I don't think at this point I could improve on the equipment. <laughs> you know, I think we basically have the very best equipment. It could not be improved. And it's portable, that's the other thing. And it's not very big. No, and you, for our needs, it does need to be portable. Well, we don't want to have a recording studio that no. takes an entire room. And so what we do is we have equipment that we set up when we record a podcast and then we take it down when we are not recording the podcast. Right. put it know. away. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the thing that's really fantastic with digital audio gear, you know, digital recording, I mean, the microphones are analog, but the recorder is digital. It's the digital version of the Nagra, which used to be the very best tape recorder in the world. I actually used it, you know, because my dad was uh, into sound analysis, you know, right. noise and vibration analysis. He was an engineer. And so I used actually a Nagra tape recorder. And I did not know at the time how good they were. I just know that they were the best. But I did not know why, really. I did not have the knowledge. But now they have the digital version, which is not only as good, but actually better because digital has absolutely no flutter, you know, the tape, and it has actually a higher dynamic range, you know. So we just have an improvement in sound from the recording that's done digitally now, you know. Digital recording is just phenomenal, and the equipment is much smaller because with tape, you had to have these tapes, and that yes. was big reels, you know. I mean, studios had 16 tracks tapes. I mean, you can imagine the width of these tapes, you know, it was one inch or two inches, you know, and uh, now digital doesn't have any tapes. So, you know, the recording is done on a USB card and whether you have a card that's, you know, one gig or 256 gig, it's the same size. Right. <laughs> right. You know, what makes mixing studios large is the mixing table. Mixing tables are still as big as they were before, but they are not powered by tape anymore. They are powered with digital, you know. So that's what we're using. And I find it very satisfying because I like to have high sound quality. I really like it. And I'm not sure why. I just think it's something important. Obviously, we could have continued recording with the setup we had before and a much lower cost, but I really wanted to increase the quality of the sound. I find it very pleasurable to have high sound quality. So let's see what is the next episode here. One episode that we did after prospering during the recession was about art. We did an episode called Practicing Photography as Art. And that actually started a series of episodes where we talk about art and we talk about the difference between commercial and fine art. So let's look at that episode, which is number 42. And then after that, I think we should stop for today and continue with the rest of the episodes on the second part. Oh, maybe. yes, I agree. It's going to get too long. It's already long as it is. Right. So let's listen to a little excerpt from this episode called Practicing Photography as Art. The composition is very weak, and um, I can just tell by looking at it that this person is at the very beginning level of photography, and to call it fine art photography Right. actually d bothers me because it definitely is It's preposterous. Yeah. I mean, we have to call things by their name. It's preposterous. And again, I think it's taking advantage of an audience who, for the large part, may not be fully aware of what is a good photograph. You know? right. And can't separate art from technique. That's very important. One of the things that is at the foundation of my teaching is that I separate fine art photography in two parts. Part one, in no particular order is the art, and part two, again, in no particular order, is the technique. 
And a fine art photograph, at the very minimum, is a photograph that's technically excellent and artistically inspired. That is, you have to take into account the technique, you have to master the technique, but then you have to have art in it. Mm -hmm. That is, you have to be inspired, you have to express your vision, because how can you create fine art without art? So that was an excerpt of this podcast on practicing photography as an art form. And one of the things that it made me think of as I was listening to it is how little we talk about gear on this podcast. And traditionally, if you listen to a lot of photography podcasts, gear is really at the forefront of a lot of the episodes. People talk about cameras, tripods, software, processing, all of that. You know, it's about how they do it in terms of the technique. Here, one of the things we really stand out as is we talk about how we do it as an art form. Right. What is art? How we approach art? You know, we have an episode that we'll talk about more in part two, which is called the difference between commercial and fine art. We talk about the difficulty of judging the arts. Oh, that is difficult, yes. Yeah. And really, that for us is a challenge because one of the reasons why people talk about gear so much on podcasts and in essays on the web and other things like that is because there's always new gear coming out. And so you have an endless resource of ideas. All you have to do is keep up with what's coming new, the new gear, and you have something to talk about constantly. Here, we don't have that. And no. so what generates ideas is us thinking about what it is that we can talk about. That's true. Like finding that list of definitions of art written by your students. That became the source for three different podcasts. Right. And we are constantly looking for this. You know, we're constantly looking for ideas because I don't want to create another podcast about gear. One of the things that I decided not to do when I started writing seriously about photography is that I would not write reviews of gear, you know, gear reviews. And the reason why I took that decision is because I was at the time publishing on Luminous Landscape. You were. And Michael Reichman was publishing reviews of gear. And I realized very quickly that Michael could write about gear better than I can because he was more interested in it and he had access to newer gear faster than me right. because he would either buy everything that was coming out or he had relationship with the manufacturers. I was not interested in buying everything that came out and I did not have relationship with the manufacturers and so I did not have access to the gear and then whenever I had access to gear I did not find it that interesting to write reviews and talk about it. And so I did a few reviews for Luminous Landscape on gear. I remember reviewing some printers, software, some monitors, uh, maybe some cameras, and then eventually I quit. And I decided that I would just write on the aesthetics. And the idea actually for writing on aesthetics came from Michael Reichman because I told him that I was not really that enamored of gear in terms of being a subject for writing or podcast and he said well why don't you write about aesthetics and i said what do you mean by aesthetics and he says well you know art what you do yeah what i do and at the time that was something that i really hadn't thought of you know right. so he was really behind that first ideas and that really gave me a direction that i enjoyed because right. that's what i like talking about that's what i like writing about and that's what we talk about here, you know, is aesthetics, basically art, you know, and the different aspects of art, whether it's approaching photography as art, the difference between art 
and commercial photography, judging the art, definition of art, what is art. I mean, there is an endless subject matter, but you just have to sort of invent because obviously it's not really something that a lot of people do. Right. right? Oh, I love talking about art. You know, I'm always uh, looking at different aspects of art and seeing, you know, what is really interesting and I mean, in a sense, that's what makes it possible for us to have a conversation, because if we did it on gear, I don't think you would have much to say. Well, I would have nothing to say. Yeah. I mean, if we were talking about new cameras, new tripods, right. new, you know, monitors, computers, uh, I mean, you, you name it, right? Uh, oh, new, yeah. new GPS uh, devices or new apps or new software, I mean, you would have nothing to say, right? No. Yeah. No. Because I you're not that interested in the technical aspects of all of that. No. And even in regards to art tools right. whether it's ceramics or drawing and painting i mean they don't change that much right. i mean yeah. well you're more interested in the art than in the tool yes and you know, for me so. it's not that they are not interesting to me obviously i use high-end equipment but i'm sure that there are people that i can write much better reviews than i can that have much more of an interest in that and i let that part of the process for them right my contribution to photography is better done in the direction of the arts than in the direction of the equipment. Right. And I go back to some of the writings done by artists in the past, and, you know, I read writings by Monet, I read writings by Devlamink, you know, I have books. Right, you De do. Devlamink, who was a favist, contemporary with Monet. And... What Rayman. did they write about? They wrote about what inspired them. Right. They wrote about art. They did not write about their paintbrushes and their canvas and their easel. And I don't have any record. Not only do I have none in my possession, but there is no record of money ever writing about his gear. Right. And he had very good gear. You know, I mean, gear was important because one of the reasons why the impressionist became the impressionist why they actually were able to go outside and paint is because of the change in the technology, the revolution in the technology of painting with the advent of tube paint, the advent of uh, portable easels, the advent of small stretch canvases that were lightweight and could be carried. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The, Just strap it on yeah. to the folding easel. Right, but all of that had to be invented. Oh, yeah. Folding easels yeah. did not exist before and, the And the folding easel had a box where you threw all the tubes of paint in. I mean, how convenient is that? No, that is so convenient. That <laughs> and then it, you wear it on your back. <laughs> so convenient that it gave birth to a new movement yeah. called Impressionism. Right. right. Before Impressionism, people painted in studios yeah. because they couldn't carry their gear. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the non-portable easel, you're lucky that you can get it in your house with two <laughs> or three guys. It, it can weigh 200 pounds. <laughs> They're right. on wheels oh, for yes. a reason, because oh, if yes. there was no wheels, you couldn't move That's it. That's exactly right. <laughs> you you know, better have wheels. If you see an easel with wheels, you have to ask yourself, why are those wheels here? <laughs> right. And I'll give you the answer. It's because of the weight. Right. If there was no wheels, you couldn't move it. Right. It's so darn heavy. It's 200 pounds. Right. Yeah. Now we have portable easels. What a concept. I'm going to go outside and paint. Right. What are you going to do with the paint? Well, I have paint in tubes so that they don't have to be mixed and carried in little parts. They can be carried in my box. And then when I'm done with them, I close them and they won't dry. Right. Wow. Right. That gave birth to an entire new movement called Impressionism, where they painted what they saw in nature as opposed to painting what was in their mind or what was in their studio. Right. 
So we move from painting models in the studio or, or still lives in the studio to painting trees and ponds and ferns and flowers and right. whatever was outside. And that's how I taught art too, yeah. was observing yeah. the scene or whatever it was that was in right. front of you. So all of that to say that technology and gear and equipment is very important. It is. But it doesn't have to be something that we all talk about. Oh, it was no. very important to the impressionist, yet we never talked about it. Yeah. And it's very important to me, and yet I'm not reviewing it. What I find more interesting in regards to art tools is the different uses that you can do with one art tool and right. being very creative and using that one right. art tool to do something that somebody right. else has not thought of. But and uh, that I find extremely fun and creative and, and, pleasurable, uh, and yeah. pleasurable. And I used to say to my students, name 10 different ways that you can apply paint to a surface. I don't care what surface right. it is. And they have to come up with 10. Yeah. And boom, you so, could just see their minds moving. So what were those, for example? Oh, I mean, you had, um, you can spray it, splatter it, throw it one guy said you can put it in your mouth and puff up your cheeks and pop your cheeks i mean they were just all over the and of place. course you can use a pen brush right but that well, goes course. with saying <laughs> but that well they didn't want to write that one down yeah. you know they were thinking all these different ways right. uh one of them we talked about the artists that they put paint on their body and then they ran up onto the canvas so that was yeah, that's one, called body painting. That, yeah, you know. one way it's to called body art. Yeah. One way to apply paint. Yeah, or or it's mean, also called demonstration art. Yeah. Um, but what you're doing is that you're not so much talking about the tool as much as you're talking about creativity. Oh, right? yeah. So it's really more about art than about gear. But those little exercises that I did in the very beginning of class helped them with the serious project that they right. did afterwards right. because the whole thing is is that you want to get them in the right side of the brain the creative side right. so that they're relaxed and then they can start their serious right. work yeah no that's exactly right it's a sort of warm-up exercise a mental warm-up exercise where they shift from a critical mode to a creative mode and then once they're in that creative mode then you give them an art assignment and they're going to do better obviously. right they are yeah. because they they, are. they don't tense up they're loose well, usually they all, they're they laughing also, they also silence the critique in their head right right i mean look at how many students that tell us i can't do this i can't do that you know and that's because there is a critic in their head that constantly talking to them and saying don't do this don't do that if you do this this is going to happen you have to turn it off. You have, right. you have to completely stop caring. I mean, I, I don't care what people think when I create. You know. If I don't want to show it, I don't have to show it. You know, <laughs> I'm not working in front of an audience. I'm working in the privacy of my studio. And if I don't like what I create, well, nobody has to see it except me, right? Right, you know? right. So all of that to say that we are not done with this list on how the podcast came to be. We are about halfway through, roughly, but we still have a long ways to go. One of the things that's really interesting about this uh, sort of subject is that it gives us ideas to talk about art, a lot of ideas. And we totally depart from the subject into tangents, and right. we talk about all sorts of things that we probably would never have talked about otherwise. You know, we talked about the different unique aspects of our podcast. That's one of the unique aspects of our podcast in the sense that we have a subject, but we don't stick to it. We right. use the subject as a sort of point of departure, as a jumping point, maybe. Right. And then we just go into whatever direction we feel like going, right? That is, to me, fun. It's a lot of fun. It is fun, yeah. yes. 
We're not trying to cover a subject with point A, B, C, and D. We actually don't have any notes usually. We just have sometimes, like for the definitions of art, we have a list. Yeah, Here we have we a do. list of uh, the right. different episodes. Obviously, I can't remember all 80 of them, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but that's it. We don't have notes. We don't have uh, an agenda. We just talk, you know. We just uh, let things happen. So we're going to stop here for today and we'll start again on the next episode with part two of the podcast story. And we'll see if that takes us to the end. And if it doesn't, then we'll have a part three. Sounds good. So until then, we wish you great photography and uh, fantastic inspiration. And we'll see you on our next podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>